I'm Tracy Balash, and this is Learn to Fly. I've known Doug Griffiths for a while. I knew him as a cabinet minister with the Alberta government. I knew he wrote a book called 13 Ways to Kill Your Community and that he launched his company, 13 Ways, based on the book. What I didn't know was the passion and fervor Doug brings to every interaction he has with municipal leaders on the topic of community. I found that out when I worked with him on a project in southern Alberta. He starts out with a fiery presentation on change. It's impressive, mesmerizing, and sobering. Here's my conversation with Doug Griffiths on rural roots and building community. So one of the things that I was thinking about, Doug, um, when I asked to interview you was um, just the experience of working with you last year um, with 13 Ways and um, loved the little colloquialisms that you were saying throughout that two-day presentation. And it really made me think about how your upbringing has really defined who you are today. Tell me about that. What, like, what are the values that define who Doug Griffiths is? Oh, that's a, that's an interesting question. I, I, I know um, growing up on the farm made quite a bit of difference in, in my world. Um, every job I ever had, people always said, oh yeah, I want to hire a farm kid. They have a work ethic and they know what to do and, and can work alone without being told and micromanaged all the time, but are good at working with others too. It's just sort of something you have to do on the farm. But you know, my, I think growing up with my, my grandparents right there on the same piece of property and I just, um, if I was going to sum it up, I'd say that um, the farm was a lot of hard work and it was pretty neat because even though we were working hard, my grandparents were right there every day and had the time to slow down and explain to me how things worked. And I think that's kind of what makes um, gives a little more wisdom sometimes to people who grew up on the farm because otherwise you're, you're always busy and you're working and having those that next generation um, give you some wisdom helps. I think it's a very grounding experience as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, like my husband also grew up on the farm too, and I just yeah. find him to be just really solid, just a grounded individual. Well, you go through so many uh, crisis scenarios on the farm. That's that's part of the wisdom that comes too. I mean, I remember like, with the, probably the worst drought, um, second worst drought in the province's history when I was a kid. And, you know, I remember my, my parents being worried and, and my grandparents saying, this will pass. <laughs> yeah. Stay calm, this will pass. And you just, you learn, you know, there's a storm coming. You, you don't panic. You just deal with it. You just have to adjust all the time. And I, maybe it does make you a bit grounded. But that's definitely why I keep, always quote my grandpa with those colloquialisms, <laughs> right? They're fantastic. <laughs> so you didn't stay on the farm, though. You you went into teaching for a while. Uh, yeah, well, I was still on the farm. Yeah. Um, I had an honors degree in philosophy and decided I didn't want to be a lawyer. And then I needed, um, I, when I was back at the farm, I still needed a job to subsidize my ranching habit, right? To, so I could okay. buy more cows and more horses. So uh, I did a little bit of teaching in my last year at the university and realized I really enjoyed it. So I got a, a teaching degree and became a junior high teacher and life was perfect. And, and uh until I shot my mouth off too much about politics and wound up in there and then I didn't have any time to farm or teach or live in a small town which is what I really wanted to do so it's kind of ironic you know it's funny that you should say that because I you know people talk about having those plans those career paths and their five-year plans I never had a plan I always say that my career has just been really organic 
back. You know, I wound yeah. up just doing things that I thought would interest me, and sometimes it worked, and sometimes it didn't. But it always led to, to something uh, that has really. Oh, just honed my skills and created new insights for me as well. Yeah. Um, and you don't know when those opportunities are coming. No, no. And if you've got a, a plan all laid out exactly how your career is going to go, all it takes is one pebble to get in the way of that path and things go awry. But if you're looking around, I mean, some amazing opportunities come. I know that's that's the way my whole life has been too. I've had I've had more careers and more lives, I think, than than I am probably. Uh, qualified for but I mean from working on the pipeline to ranching to teaching to being in politics to owning my own company several times I mean I've had some amazing experiences where does that passion for community come from um, you know I think it was I mean there's an appreciation for community that sort of comes from being in a small town and growing up on a farm how much we rely on other people and how uh, important it is um, to help make us whole to understand other people but um, it was solidified when I was a teacher. I taught in a really small community. And I mean, it wasn't a town. It wasn't a village. It was just a, a spot on a map that was a community. And it was very, very agriculture focused and people were spread all over. But that school and that community I mean, they relied on each other. Even when I was a teacher, I would go help with calving season with some of the, the parents. And I, I knew when the, the kids had been working late during harvest and didn't get their homework done, right? But I knew that that was, that's just growing up on the farm. I knew that was how life was. So I, I just started to, to talk about the need because the town I ranched in, the town I taught in, and the one I lived in in between were all shrinking. And I just started to shoot my mouth off about the need to make sure our communities were strong and not, not dwindling. And uh, it's never gone away from me. Mm -hmm. And you have 13 Ways yeah. as your company. Yeah. Um, but it's, it stemmed from a book that you wrote. Yeah, well, I, I because shooting my mouth off got me into provincial politics and then... Uh, and then I wrote the Rural Development Strategy for the province. I, I then realized that even when I laid out uh, what communities could do to work on health, education, community infrastructure, economic development, youth seniors, tourism, arts and culture, water, wastewater, infrastructure, housing, you name it, that they still were, were unwittingly doing things to sabotage their own success. And so I wrote a book about 13 Ways to Kill Your Community, which is about how attitudes sabotage our success. And, and a lot of it is about missing that, what the, what the real essence of community is. Um, our, our communities have sort of devolved into, instead of building neighborhoods, we build subdivisions. And, and it isolates us and it pulls us apart. And the beautiful thing about change is that the next generation coming along, millennials and the I generation, really want to belong to communities. They want to be in neighborhoods that are more complete. And I think they're going to be some of the greatest community builders we've seen in generations, and I'm pretty excited about it. And that's one of the mistakes you say communities make, is not paying attention to their youth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, or they, they do it in the wrong way. They treat youth like it's just people who are under 18. But youth are also the 18-year-olds to 35-year-olds that are starting out that have young families. But we sort of push them over and say, um, you're not ready for leadership yet. You, you go do your thing and, and come around when you're 40 or 45 or 50. And yet, you know, the way technology is changing, they have to, we need them to lead now mm -hmm. and be partners because 
otherwise we just don't adapt our communities fast enough to the changes in values, the changes in demographics, the changes in technology, those disruptions that are coming along to, to push communities. And if we're not prepared for what's coming in 10 years, it's already too late. The world is changing so fast. Who's listening? Uh, well, there's there's a lot of people listening. I mean, I, I speak all over North America now to communities from uh, Kansas to Nova Scotia and BC to, to California. So um, I was in Texas a few months ago. It, it's uh, it's people, communities who who are genuinely concerned and understand the challenges their communities are facing. One, but they're the they also realize that there's no going back to the good old days. There's no um, oh our community suffering because the coal is is closing down. Most of them have said you know I don't care who promises what coal is kind of on the way out. So what are we going to do to reinvent our community and what new opportunities do we have that we haven't even seen that are coming with the the value technological and generational changes and and. That's it's a smaller group because everyone, you know, you've you've seen the the picture where a guy's at the podium and he says, "Who wants change?" and everyone puts their hand up and then says, "Okay, who wants to change?" and everyone puts their head down and right. no one wants to. It really takes a, a unique group of people in a community that says, "Enough is enough. We want this community to be successful." And and that those are usually the ones who who uh, bring us in for a longer term to help them. I'm going to take this opportunity to allow you to uh, open your mouth about politics. You talk oh, no. about not <laughs> you don't going back. Not going back, and we just went through a provincial election, and that's what I felt we did. We took a step backwards, and it, and it's nothing against the UCP. I just it's the it's the platform. Form it. Climate change is a reality. Yeah. Um, Coal is not even even under um, uh, President Trump, who said um, we're going to bring back coal. Um, almost three times as many coal mines have closed down in his two years as president than all of Barack Obama's eight. Uh, you you can't change some things, mm -hmm. and uh, the, the I mean the biggest challenge. And it's what my next book is going to be about, is how um, communities that are trying to recapture the, the old days and are angry about change um, are, are buying into false promises that, you know, we'll be back strong like we did in the 80s and we'll recapture. You're going to end up being leapfrogged and left behind. You need to reinvent yourself and think about where you're going to, because as much as you may want the world to go back to the way it was, it's not. And yet... When we're angry, which I, I think um, you've probably heard me say before, the two worst human emotions, human traits that we have are anger and jealousy, because both of them are ultimately self-destructive. Right. And when we make decisions when we're angry, and I don't know about you, but I've never made a smart decision when I'm angry. And yet there's so many people who are legitimately frustrated because they've lost jobs and because the economy seems to be changing on them and they're losing footing. We need to invest in in a new type of education system that's more responsive and, and faster adaption because lifelong learning is not a, a nice mantra anymore. It's a real thing. We're, we're going to have to move to ongoing constant mm -hmm. education for a changing economy. 
that's what people need not not the promise that oh we're gonna go back to the greatness we had in the 80s it just i don't know if the 80s were that great anyway I mean, <laughs> well I, I know my parents had you know what 18 percent mortgage rate so yeah i don't know how great it was yeah. so yeah. i and and i mean you can't go back so i understand people are frustrated but the promise that we'll return to some glory and they don't have to do anything personally that's the big issue mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's the biggest frustration I ever had with government was that um, I think we were su- we were supposed to set things up and help people um, adapt, right? So they could go back to school, they could get retrained, they could find a, a new opportunities, a new economy. But what, what we've done now in government to say we will fix it for you, we will make sure we restore the economy. We won't. You don't have to change anything. You're trained to do a job in the that was prominent in the early 90s but is irrelevant now we'll find a way to still mm. create those jobs again how about we retrain them for new jobs that are relevant instead of trying to but but that's kind of what government's done now it's it's devolved to a point where and i mean this is all over the place where it says don't change we'll change yeah. things for you and that doesn't make people successful that just props them up for a little while well, and you also talk a lot about automation and how that has replaced so many jobs already yeah and will continue to do so well, i th- i i think the one of the biggest um preconceived notions that's going to be detrimental to the future for us is that we think that automation and and artificial intelligence and and augmented reality all the new technology coming is somehow going to get rid of those blue collar jobs those those Mm -hmm. i think the biggest risk is is in in high paying jobs right we don't realize they've been using um um, a robot anesthesiologist in the United States still just one on a pilot project it had one incident and it was because the anesthesiologist overrode the machine but otherwise it's done almost two million surgeries without a single incident and anesthesiologists are the second highest paid medical profession in the United States and those jobs could become obsolete mm-hmm. you could use um, um, artificial intelligence and quantum computing to uh, now engineer the world's two trade center in a matter of weeks instead of the the 10 years it took to do the world trade center one and with with so many brilliant you know complete calculations there's little chance for human error unless humans interfere in the system right Right. i mean we've got you tell a story about that actually sorry to interrupt you but uh, in fort mcmurray and the tar or the oil sounds rather um about the trucks that are automated and then in the, the the problem was when they actually had a human driver involved yeah yeah, yeah. they tried a, an autonomous vehicle you know those trucks with the tires that are 30 feet high um and it it worked well they had the driver up on a hill supervising and doing some monitoring but it ran on a preset program and it was an autonomous vehicle and didn't run without incidents but whenever they got close to having a problem it was because of the human drivers because there's a little more chaos they don't run like robots so they converted the whole pit and they haven't had a single incident and now they've got you know a third as many drivers as they needed before and they sit up on top of the hill and monitor and so they're not getting paid you know one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year to drive they're they're soon going to be getting paid more like sixty thousand dollars a year to monitor or they'll be replaced by by some new engineers that focus on and their skills are around automation and that programming rather than actually driving the vehicles so those lots of high-paying jobs are at risk and i 
you can't just say, well, we're not going to do it because we'll get leapfrogged by by India and China and Russia and Europe and the rest of the world who are going to continue to proceed with these um, new technologies. We should be working on being at the forefront, not holding on to the past. What does a successful community look like 10 years from now? Uh, so a successful community, I think, needs to start right at its core. We we always used to colloquially say, you know, the, the downtown is the heart and soul of the community. Um, and that was true a long time ago when, um, you know, we used to go down and the, the downtown was about socialization. I remember being a kid on Main Street and it was packed in my hometown. And now all of them are pretty vacant because people order stuff online. Right. And so, but whenever we're doing an economic economic development strategy we're we're still focusing on the way we did things in the 80s so we want a jean shop and a, or a clothing store and we want commodities all things you can buy online what people are looking for now are uh, experiences They're, they should be looking for, to attract services that you can't get online and socialization which was I mean when my grandpa would leave the farm when I was a kid and he'd say I'm going into town to get supplies what do you what do you need and I'd say can I come along and he'd say why I'd say well I want to go see my friends they were downtown and he'd say no next time well he went down there it took him 15 minutes to get the supplies but he would have coffee and drink a few beers with and socialize for the rest of the afternoon right Mm -hmm. it was always about socialization and so if we if we focus on designing main streets um, that are walkable with service-based and socialization-based industry with recreation downtown, that brings it back to the heart and soul of the community and housing. We miss that all the time. We build suburbs now, and it, I mean Detroit and Philadelphia and so many big cities are proof positive that five o'clock when everyone leaves work, it's a desolate downtown core. So you don't get any restaurants because who can stay open when everyone's left? Even in small towns, a lot of restaurants now are going broke or businesses close at five because everyone goes out to the suburbs, even in a smaller community, and no one's downtown. We need to bring housing back, socialization, recreation, and service-based industries. And I think, and then uh, make it aesthetically pleasing, Mm -hmm. attractive. Do all of those things because, frankly, that's what millennials are looking for. Yeah. I, I love that you brought up the the idea of housing. Um, so the neighborhood that I live in actually has the detached garages, right? So we have like our veranda in the front. Right. And it's incredible because, you know, you hear about people with their, you know, they just drive into their garage, never talk to their neighbors. And that's pretty much their existence in the suburbs. Yet in our community, we know everyone on our cul-de-sac yeah. because we're always out on the veranda talking to people you yeah. know, as they're walking by. It's incredible, you know, the kind of friendships that we've made. And we care about each other. We look out for each other. Yeah. Yeah. Just by the housing construction. Exactly. And so, and like millennials, this is why I say millennials in the I generation are so critical to the future and are going to build communities because they no longer, they don't want to be in the suburbs. I mean, look, I, I spend eight hours or 10 hours a day working with people. My generation, our generation, um, by the time we were done 50 hours, 
work weeks or 60 hour work weeks at the end of the week we were peopled out yep. so we went and cocooned in the basement turned on the TV and watched a movie and vegetated right yep the Millennials are spending eight hours a day online looking at a screen when they're done they don't want to go downstairs into the basement they want to go socialize because they haven't got to do that all day they haven't peopled even when they're chilling on Netflix they still have people with them yes I've noticed that yeah, yeah. so then they want to be in a community that's that's you know constructed like the downtown I described and and you know what they're not going to want to live in a house with a three-car garage when autonomous vehicles I mean half of the ones I talk to especially the I generation have no intention of ever owning a vehicle so but we're still building subdivisions with three-car garages and that housing isn't going to be relevant it one it doesn't build a good community but two it's not it's not even going to be something that the next generation wants yet I don't know that we're we're spending enough time evaluating and deliberately building something. We're still doing things like we did in the right. 80s and that's that's what I mean. It's detrimental to our future. Tell me what's next for you. You said you're working on another book? Yeah, yeah, um, another book um, called The Rural Revolution which is going to be around those disruptions and all the the forecasts that I see um, uh, for the future and I, I still continue to get invited all over North America to speak and um, we take select companies um, um, frankly, we I, I, I'm it's starting to get a little too much. I don't know how, how many more I can take. We'll have to talk about that because there's so many communities starting to come around and looking for those new opportunities and wanting some guidance and assistance, which keeps me busy. And I still teach uh, some classes at the university. And I don't know. I'm I'm looking forward to some downtime through the summer to get that next book finished and and published, and we'll we'll go from there. Well, I really want to thank you for taking time out to do this. And uh, if there was a, a value that I would use to describe you, it would be honor, honorable. Oh, You're an honorable you. man, Doug. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I really enjoyed this, Tracy. This is great. I'm Tracy Balash, founder of Brave Bird Studio and host of Learn to Fly. If you have any questions about this episode or would like more information on the services my company provides around coaching, leadership, and team building, Email me at tracy at bravebirdstudio.com. Thanks for listening.